Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Barbarian. Now, do you happen to know who the two people were who appeared on the cover of the game Barbarian? You will after you've listened to this entire episode. But before we get started talking about this week's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. Welcome back to another episode of Sprite Castle. Man, I am having a great week. It is uh, overcast, cloudy. My wife is out of town this week. My son is away at college. My daughter uh, is uh, uh, a teenager, and she is experiencing, she's growing into having her own social life. So she has been hanging out with friends, which has left me here at the house, which gives me lots of time to play Commodore 64 games, especially when it's overcast and raining and you can't go outside and get anything done. So that is what I have been doing uh, this week. I also have a friend who is currently looking for a C64 Maxi, and he has asked me about several different games, whether or not they're compatible and how well they work. And so I've, my C64 Maxi, unfortunately, spends a lot of time on a shelf uh, right now, but I drug it out, plugged it in, and I've been trying a few different games. So that's uh, uh, been a fun thing to do this week. I have a few new videos up on YouTube. Those are Twitch videos that we do live on twitch.tv forward slash Rob O'Hara. And those end up getting archived over on YouTube. There is a, uh, uh, a stream of Barbarian, which I did uh, the week before last. So if you'd like to check out and see what this game looks like, that has been uploaded. Uh, this week I streamed a bunch of Joust clones for the Commodore 64, ending up with... Uh, the, the version of Joust that was supposed to be released in 1984 and did not surface until last year, but I played Lancer Lord, I played, um, Return of the Space Warriors, I played, uh, uh, that version of Joust that ends with an E, Joust D, uh, lots of different Joust clones on the Commodore 64, so if those are your bag, Dragonhawk was a fun one, if you want to check those out. Uh, both those videos are available over on the Amigos YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming. Just look for the Sprite Castle playlist and you'll find those videos. I also did a bonus stream earlier this week, which was a two and a half hour stream of Apple II games on the Mister. So I spent some time going through just uh, really breaking the ice on the Apple II library. Of course, I've mentioned before that I had an Apple II before I had a Commodore 64. And I enjoyed playing Dig Dug and Congo Bongo and lots of different Apple II games. That was really fun. And uh, that is available on my channel on YouTube. You can find that on youtube.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And you will see that there. This episode's Kings of the Castle. Let's get into this. 
On the last episode of Sprite Castle, we covered Park Patrol, and the 8-bit song buried in the end of the episode was the theme to the television show Parks and Recreation, or simply Parks and Rec, which was a television program from 2009 through 2015. Uh, Several people identified the King of the Castle song. Those people included Rick Reynolds, David Modelat, Steve Sharippa, Ferg from the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, Roy Jacobs, Cantankerous42, Morgan Wentworth, and Bill Spear. So congratulations to all of this week's Kings of the Castle. They have all been sent their key, which unlocks the door. And best I can tell, they are having a rip-roaring time there inside there. Hey! Don't break those glasses. Ah, boy, animals in there. Animals I let in the castle, I tell you. So congratulations to the Kings of the Castle. If you would like to participate in the Kings of the Castle, listen for the 8-bit song. You'll hear it towards the end of this show. It will be related to the theme of the game I'm reviewing, but will not be from the game itself. If you can identify that song, send me the title in email to Rob O'Hara at robohara.com and try to put King of the Castle in the title so that I won't miss it. And if you correctly identify it, then I will send you a key that will let you into the party room where you can hang out with all the other kings of the castle for I guess two weeks between, and golly, that place is going to smell. <laughs> I'm going to have to hose it out after these animals leave. So, But uh, I'm sure that uh, Leslie Nope, Ron Swanson, and all the employees over at Parks and Rec appreciate all your help this week identifying the song. So uh, congratulations again to all the kings of the castle. Uh, there wasn't a lot of Commodore 64 news since the last episode, and so instead I wanted to use part of... Uh, the Paperboy headlines section to talk about a game. And this game is called Freaky Fish DX. Now, this is a game that was written by Chris Page and his brother Brent Page. And Chris sent me a review copy of Freaky Fish, which I have been playing over the past uh, week or two. There are physical versions of the game. Those are being put out by Bitmat Soft. You can get it in cartridge and also as a cassette. Uh, this is a fun game. I literally, and this is not like a plug. This is just a, a review, but it really is a lot of fun. Uh, you are a, you're called Jacques Le Shark <laughs> and you live in a lake and on the top of the lake is Skeeter the Fisherman and Skeeter the Fisherman is patrolling the top of the lake and he is doing something called blast fishing, which is lighting sticks of dynamite and throwing it into the lake. And, uh, if the dynamite explodes near one of the fish that are in the lake. Um, I believe it says it knocks them out, although I have to think it does something worse to the fish if the dynamite explodes near them. But as Jacques Le Shark, you have the ability to blow bubbles. And so the way that you play this game is you patrol the lake back and forth. And when dynamite, when you see uh, a skeeter throw the dynamite into the lake, you uh, can shoot a bubble at it and the bubble will send the dynamite back up towards the surface. Now the goal is to time that so that the dynamite goes back up and hits skeeter's boat. And after you uh, hit his boat enough times, you'll do enough damage and he will uh, abandon the boat and you will go to the next level, at which point you get a bonus for all the surviving fish uh, that remain in the lake. You can also blow a bubble and have it stay on the front of your face. Like you blow a bubble, like, it's almost like blowing um, like bubble gum. You blow a bubble and you can run into the dynamite and while it's captured there, you can uh, 
pick very quickly where you want to release the bubble. So if you catch it away from Skeeter's boat, you can rush towards Skeeter's boat and then uh, let it go and it will go up. But you have to be very careful because the dynamite uh, may blow up in your face, which it <laughs> did to me um, many, many times. You get 10 points uh, for capturing dynamite in a bubble and 50 points each time you hit the boat. And of course, again, you get bonus points for all the fish that are left inside the lake at the end of the level. And then every five levels, there is a bonus level where you can collect uh, energy drinks. The Skeeter has a He's addicted to energy drinks, I guess, and he throws the cans into the lake. And uh, they're different colors, so you get the different colors, and they're worth different points. Uh, but some of them are poison. If you get a poison one, the bonus stage ends, and you go to the next level. And each of the five levels um, have different backgrounds. There's a, The first five levels take place during the day. Then there are some night levels. There are tropical uh, levels. There, They've added some uh, Arctic levels. So... Um, uh, it's a lot of fun. Every time you beat a level, you get a level code so that uh, when you try to uh, start the game, when you come back and reload the game, you can start on whatever level uh, you had got to. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this game. Uh, again, it was called Freaky Fish DX, and uh, you can find it at Bitsoft. If you want to see what it looks like, I'm sure there's videos of it on YouTube. I haven't put one up, but I probably will stream that. Maybe later tonight I'll put a video up uh, of that. One thing I did like was the cartridge version allows you to load and save high scores uh, onto a disc. So I thought that was uh, a pretty cool thing. And when you load uh, the high scores in, it comes up with a big list of all the people that have already played the game. And it shows their high score. And the people on mine included Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Carrie Clanton, Chris Folds, Christopher Warren, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Darren Folds, David Zilly, David Chambers, David Hearn, David Molak, Eric Stryanisi, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Graham Vebke, Jake Nonamaker, John Morrison. This is a very long list <laughs> on the high score uh, page. John Boat of Cars Schaller, John Treholt, John Kizada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Matt Hill. Matt Nicholson, Michael Dornboss, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Olav Hope, Patrick Markey, Rydar and Christopher Bowe, Rick Reynolds, Roy Jacobs, Scott Lambert, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, Steve Sharippa, The Slow Norris, Vintage Volks, Zeke Pabsky, and The Mysterious Cobra Kai. And as a bonus towards the bottom, it mentioned Max Horstman, uh, who sent in a separate donation to support Sprite Castle. So thank you for saying that in. Unfortunately, those are not all high score achievers in Freaky Fish DX. Those are my Patreon supporters. So if you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to find out all of the bonus features and everything that you'll get by doing that. And it's greatly appreciated. It's really what puts the gas in the motor here at Sprite Castle and keeps episodes moving forward. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at Rob Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on the podcast hotline at 
YDKF. Don't forget that all Patreon supporters get access to the Amigos Discord server, which is home to several communities, including the Amigos, the ARG Presents, Pixel Gaiden, and the TeamSpeak Irregulars. And I can't forget to mention that Sprite Castle is sponsored by Retro Rewind. So for all your Commodore bits, bytes, and accessories, visit Retro Rewind at RetroRewind.ca forward slash Sprite Castle to get your 10% discount on all orders. Also, if you are one of my 16-bit supporters on Patreon, you can ask me a question, which I will answer on either Sprite Castle or You Don't Know Flat. This week's question comes from supporter Steve Sharippa, who says, I know a lot about the Commodore 64 and 128, having grown up with them in the 80s. I didn't know anyone with an Amiga and was generally unaware of the Amiga as a platform. What are the primary differences between the Commodore 64 and 128 and the Amigas that came later? I don't mean the processor was faster and the floppies were three and a half inches. I mean the OS experience programming model. Was it easy to transition from C64 to Amiga, etc.? Well, first of all, I have to say, Steve, that I am kind of in the same boat as you are. I did not own an Amiga back in the day. I did have a friend who purchased an Amiga, and I can tell you a little bit about his experience. Uh, but a lot of what I've gleaned is is uh, from talking to people and, you know, what I witnessed as an outsider as a kid in the 1980s. So right off the bat, the, the biggest thing and one of the points you brought up about the OS experience was uh, the Commodore 64 was all command line. Now, there were cartridges like the fast load cartridge that added shortcuts that made loading games and getting directories and even doing basic uh, things like formatting disks a lot simpler than having to type multiple lines of code. Um, but, uh, you know, it was all, everything was done through a command line, whereas the Amiga was done through a GUI. You booted up into Workbench and, and you did all your stuff. Now, there was a uh, command line interpreter, I guess that's the CLI, on the Amiga, so you could do some things through the command line, but most of it was done uh, through a GUI, and because things were done through a GUI, this also allowed for multitasking, which is something that the Commodore 64 couldn't do. And the most egregious example I can give of that is running a BBS. So if you ran a BBS on the Commodore 64, your computer could not do anything else. You could not play games. You couldn't do anything. My friend Justin, who uh, ran a BBS, ended up buying a second Commodore 64. So he had one that he used for playing games and doing things on, and the other one was uh, completely dedicated to running the BBS. Now, later on the Amiga, uh, you know, with with the uh, GUI workbench, you could do multitasking. So that that's a big difference right there. Another big difference is the software library. Now, the Commodore 64, I have read estimates anywhere from twenty to 30,000 uh, titles. I believe right now the number most people are going with is that there were 25,000 titles released for the Commodore 64. Don't get me wrong. They're not all great. <laughs> There's a lot of garbage in there. But there are 25,000 titles. It is a huge huge one of the largest software libraries of any home system ever. The Amiga uh I've seen estimates between 2000 and 3000. I did see an article that said about 2500 titles. So, it's significantly less titles available for the Amiga and um 
Don't forget that there was always an issue between those of us in North America who had NTSC displays and our friends across the pond who had PAL displays. And you couldn't always take uh, a program that was written uh, with PAL video in mind and bring it over to the U.S. and play it. First of all, there were speed differences. Uh, and second of all, the, the video, the refresh rate was not the same. Now, there were groups out there that would crack games and would make them compatible. And a lot of the newer software that's released will will work on either system. They actually program that in, but it requires adding different timing and, and detecting what uh, video mode the machine is in. So when you say the Amiga had 2,500 titles, if a lot of those were PAL only, it's a much smaller library that you're dealing with than uh, the Commodore 64. I think one one thing I would think of that's different between those machines is their character. Uh, that, that may not be uh, the right word, but when I think about computers from the 1980s, I think of, like when I think of Apple II, I mostly think of educational type software. Of course, that's not the only thing it had. There was lots of games. That's not what it was limited to. Um, but the Apple II was really marketed towards uh, schools, you know. And so it kind of had this, um, oh, I don't know, like a, not a personality, but it just had this image of being, you know, an educational friendly machine. Uh, the IBM was more business oriented, right? Like people would say, oh, I need a computer for my business. I need an IBM, you know, I need an XT or I need a PC junior or whatever, uh, you know, PC version you needed. And the Commodore 64 kind of had that reputation of being a game machine. Now there were things you could do on the C64 that weren't games, but that's what it shined at doing was playing games, you know? So the Amiga kind of had this, um, again, maybe not a, a reputation, but, uh, you know, when people thought of the Amiga, they thought about graphics. They thought about uh, the desktop video, you know, editing a video and things like that. And then probably second to those uh, would be games. But the problem with that is that, uh, you know, by that time, you also had things like Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis uh, that competed in the game market. And people, a lot of people didn't want to buy a computer just to play games. You bought, a, you know, if you just wanted to play games, you could buy one of those uh, um, 16-bit consoles, right? And not a lot of people had a need to do desktop video. So it kind of positioned itself as this computer that didn't necessarily uh, appeal to everyone. It's kind of, um, uh, so it kind of has, I don't know, just a different market, it feels like. Um, another thing was, uh, you know, how available were they? That was a big difference. You know, I got a lot of my Commodore 64, one of my, uh, behind me, I have a shelf where I have a lot of my original boxes of things. And my 1541 disc drive has a sticker on it that says it came from service merchandise. Uh, the other one has a, a sticker on it that says it came from target, you know, so you could walk into regular department stores and buy, Commodore stuff, Commodore games, uh, uh, Commodore 64 modem. I remember modems just hanging on the peg shelf at uh, Walmart, you know. And the Amiga wasn't really like that. Uh, the Amiga, uh, I remember seeing them at bookstores at the mall, but a lot of times even, you know, like when you went to, oh, the, the places at the mall that sold games and stuff, they didn't have Amiga stuff, you know. So it was um, uh, seemed to be a little bit more elite 
in terms of where you could buy that stuff. And in Oklahoma, um, you know, you had to, sometimes you had to kind of really shop around to find stuff for it. Um, another difference would be price. Of course, Commodore 64 was really known as being one of the cheapest uh, computers. You know, it started at $599, and then the next year, I think, it dropped to either $249 or $199, a price point it stayed at for a long time, and then it dropped even further, right? So, um, I mean, their their whole uh, their motto, right? Uh, uh, it was a computer for the masses, not the classes, right? So they didn't want to be the most expensive computer. They wanted to be really inexpensive. But the Amiga didn't do that. Um, the Amiga was uh, fairly expensive. You know, I remember uh, the Amiga 500, people saying you could get one for $599, but that would, wouldn't have included a monitor and the other stuff that you needed, you know. So, um, you know, the Amiga was was uh, um, relatively expensive. And the problem with that is that the price was high, but you have the reputation of Commodore computers in general being low. <laughs> so <clears throat> people are expecting it to be inexpensive. And then when it's priced expensive, um, I don't think they did themselves a service there. Uh, finally, I think, you know, that you have um, the things that are going on with competition at the same time. Like if you look at the Commodore 64, like what was it competing against? You know, the Apple II. And, and as a kid, you looked at an Apple II, maybe one that didn't even have color, you know, it was on a monochrome monitor or you had that four color, the early four color, um, Apple II palette, you know, and you looked at a Commodore 64, it was easy for a kid to tell which one looked better. It's, it's very easy to tell which one sounded better. Uh, I remember a friend had a, uh, a TI 99 and I went over to his house and he had a couple of games and I was like, these are not good. You know, after I'd been playing Commodore stuff for several years, um, and I'm not dogging the, the TI, I'm just saying when you, when you compared the two in real time as kids, it was easy to see that the games looked better on the Commodore, you know? Um, so for a long time, the Commodore had the best games on, on all those home systems. Uh, but, but the Amiga almost immediately I mean, had competition from the ST, right? And, you know, you can't really look at the Amiga from 85. You have to start looking like, when did people start getting it? When did it start trickling down? When did uh, normal people start adopting it? And that's a little bit later, right? Like that's probably 87, maybe 88, um, around that time. And there's a really small window between that and then when DOS machines started getting uh, VGA, and started getting sound blaster. So all of a sudden PCs uh, who, you know, had been losing the game race for a long time, uh, all of a sudden had much better graphics, had much better sound and could compete with the other 16 bit computers. And uh, I found this fact. Um, it's uh, this is from computer gaming world magazine. And it said that in uh, 1991, 82% of all game sales uh, were uh, for MS-DOS and that the Macintosh had 8% of the market and the Amiga only had 5% of the market. So that's 1991. Amiga has 5%. I'd be interested to see what the Commodore 64 had in 1991. I mean, it has to be, it could have still been around 5%, you know? So um, it just feels like uh, the Amiga, 
you know, people are still using it today. They're still pushing it. You know, they do the same with the Commodore and a lot of these old machines. But uh, it just feels like the window that it had to succeed was not very big. Uh, it just didn't have enough time. Uh, the price was too high. Um, you know, it, it felt like when you went into a store, like, you know, the um, Atari ST line of computers, they do a million things. They play games, they do utility stuff, they do whatever, right? But when people go, what's the Atari ST? You go, oh, yeah, it did MIDI. Like, like it just gets tagged with, like, one thing that it's known for. And everybody that talked about the Amiga was like, oh, yeah, you could do, you know, those those type of graphics. Like, you know, you could do video, like the video toaster. You could do titles. Well, of course, the Amiga did a lot of other things than that. But people just, you know, my friends were like, oh, you could do that. And then they go, I don't want to do that. I want to play games or whatever. And the weird thing was at the same time, that the Amiga was out, you could still buy a Commodore 64. Um, and so it, it, they didn't do themselves any justice. And then there was a time where you could buy eight different Commodore computers, right? Like you could buy a 64 or a 128 or a plus four or a Commodore 16 or a CD32 or an Amiga or, or any of the Amiga models, you know, so that they kind of diluted their own brand a little bit. So anyway, Steve, thank you for asking the questions. Uh, that's kind of my thoughts on the difference between the experience between the Commodore 64 and the Amiga. And that wraps up this week's headlines, which were brought to you by my local paperboy who crashed into a guy using a jackhammer. Now you have a friend in the paper business. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. Well, even though this week's game is Barbarian, uh, I had Freaky Fish DX on the mind this week when I was looking for something to eat. My very good friend Rob Sherwin, you might know him as Ice Cream Jonesy, happened to visit Oklahoma for his birthday. And I took him to a restaurant called Hatch. Hatch is known as Early Mood Food. It's a trendy place here in Oklahoma City, there was just one location, and it was one of those places where when you went, you could just expect to wait an hour to get in, but they have opened a second location that's very close to my house, and I don't think a lot of people know about it yet because you could get right in. And so we went there, and of course, like I said, I had this freaky fish game on the mind, and I ended up ordering smoked salmon Benedict, which according to their menu has toasted sourdough, cold smoked salmon, honey borson shallots fried capers, and cream cheese with a hollandaise sauce. Uh, A few years ago, I went on a cruise to Alaska, and we got upgraded from a normal room because we were moving rooms, and we needed two rooms that were connected. And so somehow we got upgraded into uh, this uh, suite. And the suite, because if you have a key to a suite, it gives you access to other things on the cruise ship. And we got access to this restaurant that you could go to for breakfast And um, they were so proud of their Eggs Benedict. I had never had Eggs Benedict, I don't think. And I I said, you know, I just want some pancakes. And the lady said, have you tried Eggs? She was uh, from Romania. She said, have you tried Eggs Benedict? And I said, no. She said, you try that. I said, well, I really want pancakes. She says, I bring you both. (laughs) And so every day when we went there for the cruise, we were on the cruise for, you know, I think 13 days. And every day that we went, I would order something and then she would bring me Eggs Benedict also. And so, uh, anyway, this kind of reminded me of that, but the uh, smoked salmon 
on there was uh, fantastic. It was it was really good. And um, if that was uh, if they were acquired by uh, blast fishing by Skeeter and his boat, so be it. What are you going to do? <laughs> But I can say that the fish did not have a head on it. And speaking of taking people's heads off, Barbarian, also known as Death Sword, was published for the Commodore 64 in 1987 by Palace Software. It is for one or two players that uses joystick controls. Now, for those of us here in the U.S., Epics was the publisher of this game, and they released it under the name Death Sword because there was already a game named Barbarian that had been released over here. We have talked about Epics before on the show. They were one of the most prolific and successful publishers on the Commodore 64 in the 1980s. Uh, it looks like I have covered four other Epics titles on the show, which included Winter Games, California Games, Jumpman, and Sword of Fargol. Uh, this game was developed by Palace Software. Now, Palace Software has a very interesting uh, backstory. They started off as the Video Palace, which was a video rental store in the UK, and they started selling video games. And when they started selling video games, people started bringing them games and asking if they would sell their games. And so they didn't really know this was a market until that started happening. So they said, you know what, we could sell other people's games, and maybe we could even write our own games and sell that. So uh, born from the video palace was Palace Software. Uh, the manager of the store was Peter Stone, and his sales assistant was Richard Linefeller. And so these two guys got together and decided to make a game for the Commodore 64, and they made Evil Dead, which, uh, according to them, was not very good. They knew that the artwork was not very good and the gameplay was okay. So they put an ad in the paper uh, asking or uh, seeking someone who could do better artwork for them. And the man that answered that ad was named Steve Brown. So Steve Brown was hired for the artwork. And he looked at a lot of other games on the Commodore 64. He wasn't really into programming. He didn't have a big background in this. But when he looked at these games, he said, you know, you got platform games and you got scrolling games, but why can't you make a game that does both? And everybody said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And so Steve Brown uh, ended up designing and programming Cauldron. Uh, there's Cauldron 1 and Cauldron 2, which were very successful games on the Commodore 64, and they were successful uh, for Palace Software. And so Steve Brown hit the, the ground running, and he said, I'm going to make all these other kind of games. You know, he, he was coming up with all these game ideas. But one of his favorite movies at the time was Conan. And not just Conan the Barbarian, but the sequel, Conan the Destroyer. And a very popular game at the time was Way of the Exploding Fist. And so he thought, what if I could mix those two things? And so that was the basis of Barbarian. He wanted to take parts from uh, Conan, the movies, but he also wanted to have it a fighting game similar to Way of the Exploding Fist. Uh, before I get too much uh, 
into that, I did want to mention that Palace Software was also responsible for uh, a very popular game known as the Sacred Armor of Anti... I always say this wrong. I think it's Anti-Riad or Anti-Raid. I'm not really sure. But uh, in the U.S., it was Rad Warrior, which is much easier to say. So they did that. Uh, they they had huge success with Barbarian. They then released Barbarian 2, and then things did not go well. And in 1991, the company was sold to Titus. So they had a, a short run in the Commodore software game, but most of their games are all uh, pretty uh, popular and pretty famous. Barbarian is a fighting game in which barbarians use their swords, feet, and occasionally heads to do battle with one another. Uh, you can fight uh, computer opponents or you can fight with a friend in a one-on-one -on -one type of game. Uh, but that's basically what this is, a fighting game that involves barbarians using swords. The pop culture references of the time. Well, again, Steve Brown said that he was heavily influenced by Conan the Destroyer. Uh, Conan the Destroyer itself was uh, released in 1984, and it came after a series of barbarian-themed movies. In 1981, there was Dragon Slayer and Clash of the Titans. Uh, there was Sorcerer in 1982. In 1982, there was also the... Uh, uh, the Sword and the Sorcerer, Sorceress and Beastmaster. Uh, then in 1982, later that year, you get Conan the Barbarian, which was followed in 1984 by Conan the Destroyer. But those movies uh, were incredibly popular, and there were many, many other movies that followed those four years to come. In 1985, you had Red Sonja, the Amazons, the Barbarian Queen, uh, he had uh, Dungeon Master, Lady Hawk, Legend. So there lots of, um, you know, barbarian-style movies, fantasy-style movies, so on and so forth. There's even the Barbarians. <laughs> uh, so lots of those types of movies. So that was one of Steve Brown's big influences. And then, as I mentioned, his other big influence were uh, player-versus-player fighting games. Way of the Exploding Fist is one that he mentioned specifically, but he wanted to build that type of experience into this uh, where two people could fight one another uh, in a game. And so, you know, by mixing those two things, essentially, you have Barbarian. The box of Barbarian is a story unto itself. The UK version says Barbarian, the ultimate warrior. And there are two people on the cover of this box. The first is the Barbarian himself. He is wearing a very thin headband and he is wearing a loincloth that is only slightly larger than the headband. <laughs> he is holding a gigantic two-handed sword. And then at his feet is a princess who is wearing a very skimpy bikini top and has her arm wrapped around the barbarian's thigh. There's also an advertisement that says free poster inside. And right there, I got to tell you, every teenage boy that was into uh, computer games couldn't wait to buy that and get that free poster. Um, we will be talking a lot more about uh, uh, these people that appeared on the cover. But just to contrast that, uh, again, this game was published by Epics in the United States under the name Death Sword. The 
graphics were all changed for the front. Uh, in Death Sword, there's just a barbarian holding a sword. Uh, he's much more decorated like Conan the Barbarian. He has a metal band he's wearing on his head rather than just a, a cloth headband. He has this giant necklace thing around his, his neck. He has big arm gauntlets on. He has a big gold thing around his waist. And then he's just standing in front of a dark castle uh, brick wall. Now, on the back of the UK version, you have the princess, who is uh, the woman from the front, and she is just holding the sword, but she's resting the blade on the ground. My my guess is that she didn't want to pick this thing up. Uh, there's a quote at the top, and it says, And lo, a mighty warrior shall come from the frozen wastelands of the north, and he will stand alone against the forces of darkness. And that quote is attributed to the Book of Death. Um, I don't know that I've read the book of death, <laughs> but what a great, uh, place if I don't really think that's a real book, but uh, what a great place to get a quote from if you're looking for a quote for your game. Uh, then there are two screenshots of the game and that's basically it. That's what you get. Uh, I don't know if this was because of epics or if this is because, uh, U S consumers wanted so much more information before buying a game. I don't know. But the uh, Epic's release, Death Sword, has a ton of story information on the back that does not appear on the UK box. It says, um, first the Black Plague, now this. Drax, the evil sorcerer, is holding Princess Mariana captive in his dark and dismal dungeon. And he'll only release her to the warrior who can defeat his barbarian guards in deadly sword combat. Somebody gets the girl. While Drax looks on, you'll fight one-on-one -on -one against a string of his ruthless slaves. Clashing swords in the Forgotten Dungeon, Drax's throne room, the molten lava bed, and in the dark enchanted forest. As Gorth, the hero warrior, you'll need to sharpen your sword skills, using powerful combination moves to cut down your opponents. If you fail, the court gremlin will throw you on the heap with the rest of the warriors. And then what will become of your lovely Princess Mariana? Clash with the brawn barbarians in head-to-head -head sword combat. Only the best will take on Drax himself. Defeat your foes in the throne room, dungeon, lava bed, or dark forest. Collect trophies using the hair-raising web of Death Chop. Cinematic graphic and metal-on-metal -metal sound effects. Two-player practice option. Joystick controls. Uh, so a lot more information on the U.S. box than on the U.K. one that I was able to find. Again, I don't know if that was um, a decision Epics made or, I mean, I don't know why they made that decision. Did they feel like people needed to know that your name was Gorth? <laughs> like, does that sell games? I don't know. Um, but uh, But yeah, a lot more information on that one. Uh, you get even more backstory in the manual. In fact, on the first page of the manual, it says Drax has captured Princess Mariana, doom on the people of Jeweled City unless she is delivered to him. Gorth, the son of Toth, king of the Northlands, you've crossed Windhorn Pass on your way south to Eleonora, capital of the warm country. After many days of travel, you come upon a tiny city and make your way to the Black Stallion Inn. Boy, I miss my calling. I could have wrote that. I could write that kind of stuff. Black Stallion in Son of Toth. <laughs> I don't know who decided that was important, but, uh, you know, somebody was living out there, um, I don't know, their their dream of writing the 
the third Conan movie or something. But um, anyway, all that information doesn't mean Hill of Beans in the game. But uh, if you really wanted to know that your name is Gorth and you're the son of Toth, the king of the Northlands, uh, there you go. What I want to do is start fighting. And so you put the disc in the drive. And I should say right off the bat, uh, Barbarian 1, which is the first game, uh, the disc is double-sided, and if you put in the first side, it is a practice where you fight another person over and over. That's all you do, is you fight barbarians. And you can do it one or two player, but that is considered practice mode. Side two is the actual game where you will fight to the death and you have to work through all the different barbarians and then eventually uh, face Drax before you can rescue Princess Mariana. Uh, once you load this game, it goes right to the game screen and you will be watching a demo of the computer fighting itself. So there's no fancy title. There's no fancy music or anything to kick us off. We go right to the game itself. On the game screen across the top, you will see Barbarian written in the Barbarian font and you'll see the scores of player one and player two. On the left and right side of that are six circles and those represent each player's hit points. Now, uh, like a lot of fighting games, a solid hit will remove an entire circle, and a lighter hit or a glancing hit will only take half a circle. So to defeat your opponent, you'll need to hit them somewhere between 6 and 12 times. Now, on the left side and right side of the screen are these big columns that have snakes wrapped around them. Uh, the one on the left is blue, and the one on the right is green. Now, in other versions... On other systems, for the most part, the snakes are the same color, so it's kind of a strange design choice, but I mean, it's cool. I'm just not sure why they did that. But each time your player gets hit, the snake on your side of the screen, the head kind of almost does like a little scream, like it recoils in pain. Um, this is one of those things that doesn't affect the game at all, but it's super cool. It's super neat that somebody spent the time to animate these snakes uh, to do this every time that you got hit. Uh, so you begin the game fighting. I believe the arena is the first one. The uh, backgrounds really don't make any difference where you're fighting. There's no interactivity with the backgrounds. Uh, but the first one is looks like an arena, and you can see Drax and the princess in the background. They're elevated above where the fighters are, and they're looking down into this arena and watching uh, you fight another barbarian. Uh, I should mention that all the barbarians, uh, the graphics are the same except for the enemy barbarians. Their torsos have been color swapped with different colored shirts. So your guy has no shirt. And as you go through the uh, 10 other barbarians, you'll fight a guy in a blue shirt. You'll fight a guy in a black shirt. You'll fight a guy in a red shirt. They all look exactly like you. They just have on different colored shirts. The controls in Barbarian are relatively easy to pick up. Like fighting games on the system with only one button, they get the most out of all the joystick directions. So there are eight moves you can do without the button down, uh, and there are eight moves you can do with the button pressed down. Now, without the button down, most of those uh, have to do with moving or blocking. Of course, uh, four of those are up, down, left, and right, uh, down ducks and up jumps. Um, and then you can do a forward roll, a backward roll, and then there are two blocking moves, one that blocks your torso and one that blocks your head. Um, with the button, there are eight different offensive attacks. There's uh, uh, sword slices in the, in the manual. It says there's a neck chop, a body chop, and a leg chop. 
So that's high, medium, low. There's also a overhead chop. Um, there's a, uh, the second most famous move in this game is the web of death. And this is a move that was taken directly from the Conan films. Uh, this is where you, you swing the sword almost around in a circle to, uh, it's kind of a parry move and maybe an intimidation move. Uh, so, so the web of death is one. Um, there is a, uh, a headbutt move that's offensive, which is very funny because, uh, when you connect, it gives a little coconut kind of <laughs> sound whenever you headbutt a guy. Um, but the most famous move in Barbarian is listed in the documentation as the flying neck chop, even though you're not flying when you do it, you're spinning. So I don't know why it's not called the spinning neck chop. Uh, but if you press the button and point the joystick away from your opponent, your barbarian will do a 360 spin that ends with your sword at his neck level. And if you could connect with this attack, meaning they're not blocking it or they're not too far away or too close, uh, you will chop their head off, which immediately ends the fight. So no matter how far ahead you are, how far behind you are, what's going on anywhere else, that is an instant fatality that ends the battle. Uh, and so there are a lot of people that simply play this game by doing that move over and over and over and hoping that you'll eventually connect with it uh, before your opponent kills you. Um, some of the moves, because there's a limited amount of moves, some of the moves don't really correlate to the directions on screen. For example, if you do hold down the button and pull away from your opponent and down diagonally, uh, that is um, an overhead chop. So you would think pulling away would be a defensive move or moving away and pulling down. You don't, I wouldn't think of that as being an overhead attack. So, um, you know, there's a lot of moves like that, that, uh, you just kind of got to learn or, or remember where they are because they don't uh, correspond with the direction uh, of your attacks on the screen. Now at the end of each match, either you will die or your opponent will die. That's how every match ends. Um, that, that's not true in the, uh, uh, timed one you can get, you could have a tie or you could get to the end where you're ahead in circles. But, um, but when the game ends and one of the uh, two players is dead, a small goblin named Grundle, according to the documentation, will come out from the side and he will haul the body off. Now, the documentation in the manual says that he's eating the bodies. The back of the box doesn't say anything about eating the bodies. It just says hauling them off. But uh, according to the manual, he hauls those people off and eats them. Uh, but the greatest part, well, there are two great parts. So number one is if you have managed to lop off your opponent's head, or unfortunately, if he's lopped off your head, uh, Grundle, the, the I'm always going to call it Grundle the Gremlin, Grundle the Goblin will when he shows up, we'll kick your head like a soccer ball and it will go bouncing off the screen. Um, but either way, whether or not your head is attached or not, he will offer a quick uh, laugh, a series of grunts before hauling the body off. So that's, uh, um, th there's a lot of talk about how this game is humorous. And this is one of the things that's supposed to be uh, uh, humorous. The uh, goblin showing up, kicking the heads off and stuff. So uh, it's, I would say amusing. I wouldn't call it necessarily humorous, but uh uh, entertaining. Let's put it entertaining. In addition to all the joystick controls, there are multiple keys on the keyboard. Uh, when you start a game, uh, F3 toggles music and sound effects on and off. I believe F1 toggles between one and two players. Uh, F5 pauses the game and F7 starts the game. 
Also, while you're playing, you can press Q at any time to end the game. I want to talk about the game's sound and graphics for just a minute. The graphics were created, according to Steve Brown, by using rotoscoping. Now, rotoscoping is something we talked about uh, back on the Karataka episode, where Jordan Mechner made 8mm films of himself running and sliding and jumping, and then transitioned frames of that to graph paper, and eventually turned those into sprites, which is how he got such amazing uh, fluid animation on his games Karataka and later Prince of Persia. Steve Brown, now it doesn't, Steve Brown does not credit Jordan Mechner, and maybe it was just a uh, open secret, or maybe it wasn't even a secret at that point, how he, uh, Jordan Mechner, had done the graphics for the, his games. Um, but uh, Steve Brown said that they decided to do the same thing with their games, and so he and, and one of his partners made big, giant uh, cutout swords, I believe they said wooden swords, and they performed all the moves in the game, and then uh, turned those into sprites that they used for key frames of animation. Uh, that's a great story, and I enjoy that story, but I don't know how well that translated uh, to Barbarian. I don't think that the the graphics, I mean, the, uh, the animations, first of all, the sprites are very large, uh, which is good. I mean, they're, they're large and detailed, so it's not like little tiny people fighting. It's large, you know, you can see the characters, you can see what they're doing, you can see their faces and everything. But when they walk around, like their torsos don't move at all. It's just their legs kind of animate, you know, and, and, um, you know, they attack with the sword, but like the, the low attack and the middle attack don't really look natural at all. It's like you're standing, uh, at normal height and then you kind of attack someone in the thigh. It's, it's strange. And so I was really surprised to read that they used rotoscoping because the, the animation in this does not look fluid like it does in uh, Prince of Persia or in Karataka. So, uh, I, you know, I, I think it does give you the right proportions on the characters, maybe, like their arms are the right length, to, you know, as compared to their legs and their height and things like that. So maybe that's uh, what they got out of it, but it certainly doesn't give you the, the same type of fluid animation that I've seen in those other games. The sound of this game is really good. You have lots of metal clanks, you know, when the swords hit each other. There's lots of uh, little grunts. There's swishing sounds when you uh, swipe your sword. There's a lot of uh, alliteration in that sentence. And uh, you miss. Again, there's that little coconut, like that little sound you know, when um, your head, uh, when you headbutt the other guy. And of course, you have the. Uh, the goblin, you know, when he comes out and laughs and hauls off the body. And, and plus, there's lots of little music and little musical cues and things like that. So the sound of this game uh, is really good. Actually, it's a, a very complete game package. Now, in regards to strategy, I don't know that this game has the depth of a modern fighter. I don't know that you would say, well, gosh, if, if a guy's using this technique, this is the, the block I would use. I mean, I don't, I don't think the fighting gets into that level of detail. Uh, in fact, you can usually beat the first several opponents by just doing the, um, spinning attack move over and over. And eventually you will land, uh, and chop their head off. So, um, and a lot of times when you're playing against a friend, you'll both just be doing that move over and over until somebody finally lands it. Um, 
as I was playing, I was seeing just keep spinning, just keep spinning. Um, I, I did notice one technique that seemed to work pretty well, which was uh, a, a move that I used to do a lot as a kid. And uh, I, I think I figured out why as I was replaying it is you could do this forward roll which will knock your opponent down, and you could follow it with a front kick, which will also knock them down. Now, the rolling into them knocks them down, but it doesn't take uh, any hit points away. But the kick does take half a hit point away. But both of those moves are the same direction. They're both diagonal down uh, towards your opponent. It's just one uses the button and one does not use the button. So uh, you, what I found was that you could roll into the corner. You could roll your opponent into the corner, and once you got them there, you could attack them over and over and over, and they would have a hard time escaping, especially if you stay low and you're doing a lot of low attacks. Uh, so that seemed to work pretty well for me if you can um, uh, pin them down that way. Now, one of the things I like to do in these games, as you know, is go into the manual and see how the scoring works, how many points you get for uh, doing different things in the game. In Barbarian, and I want to quote the manual here, it says, quote, Points will be awarded depending on the difficulty of the move used. <laughs> That's what it says. So there is no score listed, no points listed for different maneuvers, different anything. Uh, that's it. <laughs> you get what you get. Uh, but based on that, the current uh, high score recorded on retrocomputerscene.com is 16,750. Now, uh, if you've played this game, I played this game a couple times, and I easily got scores in the um, five, six, seven thousand range. Um, but one thing you have to keep in mind is that this is all for barbarian. Uh, you know, there's only ten opponents, so you have to score uh, as many points as possible. So it's not like you can play forever. Uh, it's how many points can you get while you're you're beating the ten opponents before you finally get to Drax uh, and then uh, win the game. So I should uh, mention that as part of the game, I suppose, is that, uh, uh, you know, in the uh, if you play the front side of the disc, you uh, can play indefinitely because you're just fighting either computer opponents or fighting your friend in, in uh, two uh, barbarian versus barbarian action. But on the back side of the disc, uh, you are playing through a series of opponents trying to eventually reach Drax, who is the wizard who has captured the princess. And so... Uh, to beat the game, finally, after you've beat all of the other Barbarians, you will get to Drax. Drax is the only opponent that looks different than the Barbarians. He looks like a uh, stereotypical bald wizard in a long, flowing purple-blue robe. And he throws these magic spells at you, which um, they're not quite fireballs. They look more like sparklers that come at you. And they will either go high or low, so you need to get... Uh, as close as you can to Drax. And I believe if you just strike him one time, you defeat him. Uh, but as his fireball shots are coming towards you, you need to either duck or jump over those. So he is, uh, uh, you know, the later barbarians are difficult to beat, but he is completely different. So the first time you get to him, just expect he'll kill you uh, <laughs> until you get used to his fighting style. Uh, now, as one thing that I've added to the show, I mentioned this on the last show, is that I am accepting high scores and brief reviews from uh, my Patreon supporters who are also 
uh, most of which are on the Amigos Discord server. And so I did get a short review this month from Mitsuyama. Mitsuyama says, I'm more familiar with the Amiga version than the Commodore 64 version, but it seems no matter which version I play, I still suck at it. <laughs> the Commodore 64 version is quite good. The graphics are nice, colorful, and well animated. The music and sound effects are good, and the gameplay is solid. The animated snake heads are a nice touch. The game relies on timing rather than button mashing, and nothing beats the feeling when you manage to pull off a neck chop to lob off your opponent's head with the small goblin booting it off the screen. The two-player practice mode is more fun than the one-player main game, but overall, it is a very good game. So again, um, you know, playing on the front side of the disc, you can play against your friend, and if you flip the disc over, you go through this series of guys before you try to... Uh, uh, finally beat the game, just like uh, Mitsuyama pointed out. So, uh, yep, I agree with uh, with everything he said. And again, on the um, button mashing, your barbarians don't move fast enough for button mashing. So you can try to do the same move over and over and over, but your opponent will just see what you're doing and they will do something else. Uh, so let's get into a little bit of the trivia about this game. And most of the trivia has to do with the artwork. Now, uh, Palace did not want to use what they called painted artwork for the cover of their game. They didn't want uh, an illustration. They wanted to do an actual uh, photo. And so they set up a photo session and they hired two different people to be the models. Uh, the first was a man named Michael Von, and I believe it's Michael Von Vyck. His last name is spelled W-I-J-K, uh, but it's a Dutch name, and I believe it's Vyck. Um, he was the owner of several gyms, and he was into bodybuilding, so he looked a lot like Conan the Barbarian, and uh, they brought him in to be the Barbarian. They took lots of pictures, which were used um some for the cover, some for the poster, uh, some other alternative shots were used in uh, advertising. Uh, and then later, uh, both of these uh, people were brought back for Barbarian 2. Uh, the biggest claim to fame in Michael Von Weich's life is not that he was on the cover of Barbarian, but that he went on to become Wolf in the Gladiators. And this is the UK version of Gladiators. Those of us on this side of the pond are more familiar with American Gladiators. Uh, but this was Wolf in the Gladiators uh, from 1992 until 1999. So he was on the show for a long time, and uh, that's where most people know him from. The woman who appears as the princess on the front cover is Maria Whitaker. Now, in the UK, you guys uh, are familiar with... Um, I believe it's called the uh, page three models and they had page six models, but the uh, page three models uh, always appear topless in the newspaper. That is not a thing in the U S you will never find any newspaper that you could pick up uh, at a normal newspaper stand that would have any topless woman in it. But this is a thing in the UK and uh, she was famous for being a topless model. Uh, she was a very famous uh, they call her a page three model. I looked her up online and also found that uh, prior to her career as a topless model, she was in two episodes of Benny Hill. <laughs> so that checks out. Um, so this became very controversial in the, in the uh, advertising, in the box, in the pictures, in the poster, and uh, all these things because Maria Whitaker was in it. Now, I should say that she is wearing a bikini top 
in this game, or you know, in the artwork on the the box cover and in the poster, she's not exposed. She's not indecent or naked or anything like that. Uh, but I guess just her past history of being a page three model made this uh, a controversial decision. And of course, as I mentioned on the U.S. box work uh, for um, or the artwork for uh, Death Sword. There's no princess at all. <laughs> they just put the barbarian on there. So they avoided that controversy altogether. Um, the other thing that was controversial about this game at the time was the quote unquote extreme violence. And that include the ability to chop off your opponent's head. Now, when you do that move, their head falls off, a little bit of blood squirts out, and the body falls over limp. And then, of course, the goblin comes, kicks the head, and then hauls the body off. Uh, this was immediately banned in Germany. And Germany has a, a long history of, um, you know, suppressing video games that have violence. And so uh, it, it got their 18-plus uh, rating. And so the the uh, programmers over at Palace ended up making a different version or altering the version released in Germany. And they replaced the blood with the color green. Now, I don't, you know, I guess this gets by certain things. I know the most famous example of that is Mortal Kombat on the Nintendo but who are their right mind? I mean, these are obviously people. They're obviously barbarians. They're obviously fighting. And so I don't know. And chopping the head off is okay, but the blood being green instead of red is, is the thing that, that got it back over the edge or something. I really don't understand. Uh, I don't know. I, I just don't understand that sort of thing. And um, I, I, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, uh, all that stuff in my personal memories coming up. So I, we'll just leave it there. But um, uh, yeah, it was very controversial. Both the artwork and the violence in this game were controversial at the time. Uh, but it did not seem to affect the game's reviews. If we look on Lemon64, this has a aggregate review Rating of 8.3 out of 10. Zap64 gave it 87%. Computer and video games gave it 100%. Tilt gave it 100%. Retro Gaming History, this is in 2009, gave it 80%. Commodore User gave it 80%. And 64er gave it 77%. So those are all really good uh, ratings. If you read the reviews, and I read several of the reviews, they all basically say the same thing, which is this is a fun player versus player fighting game. Uh, they all seem to like the humor and they like the uh, adventure part where you, not adventure, but the uh, um, uh, the backside of the game where you progressively work through all the barbarians and try to save the princess. So um, there aren't very many bad reviews of this game. Everybody did seem to like it. This game was ported to several different computers at the time. It uh, Both 8-bit and 16-bit machines. It appeared on the Amiga. It was on the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, Atari 8-bit, the Atari ST, the BBC Micro. There is a DOS port. Uh, it's on the Electron, and it is on the ZX Spectrum. Uh, there were also newer versions released on the iPad and iPhone. So um, I was not able to find those and they're no longer available. So uh, I, I couldn't even find screenshots of them, but uh, Moby Games does list those as versions that were released at some point in time. If you would like to own an original copy of Barbarian, you just have to have that included poster of uh, our page three girl. Um, again, there's lots of pictures of her wearing less than what she's wearing <laughs> 
on this game. But if you want the poster, you want the whole thing, you can go to eBay. But bring your wallet. Um, the complete, the cheapest I found uh, was a copy that sold for $14, uh, which was not complete. But that, uh, almost all these versions, uh, again, Barbarian being the uh, UK version, shipping right now is just crazy. So for $14, uh, I would also have to pay $41 shipping. There is a complete, uh, this just sold a complete cassette version for $30 and then $30 shipping. Uh, there is a um, a Kicks, which was a budget release, which sold for $5.50, but that's $22 shipping. Uh, so shipping is just crazy right now. There's a 50, uh, version that sold for $55 with another 25 shipping. Um, I thought the best one that I found was a two-pack. This is a complete in-box uh, two-disc version that has both games, Barbarian 1 and its sequel, Barbarian 2, which we haven't talked about. Uh, and that is selling right now for $115 and then only $11 shipping. So if you want every Barbarian game from, from this line of Barbarian games, uh, $115 will do it for you. Uh, versions of Death Sword are not as popular and they don't sell for as much, but there is one copy uh, for $50 right now plus $6 shipping. And that is a local U.S. I say local, but a U.S. seller um, for Death Sword. So again, $50 is uh, uh, not cheap, but uh, the shipping is much less. But you're not getting that cool poster in that one. <laughs> All right, that's enough about the poster. Let's get to my personal memories of Barbarian. You know, I never really thought about this before, but on the Commodore 64, there were a lot of games that were one-player games, and those were more fun to play when you were at home by yourself. And then there were games that were more fun to play with a friend, you know, and so it's almost like two separate libraries of games. You know, there were games like uh, Ghostbusters and Impossible Mission and games like that that were uh, a lot of fun to play, just one-player games, you know, and if your friend came over and you were playing that one of you were playing and, and one of you was watching. Uh, but the system has just as many great two-player games. Uh, my buddy Jeff, when we would get together, we would play Spy vs. Spy. We would play Top Gun. Uh, of course, Way of the Exploding Fist has been mentioned multiple times. Uh, Bounces is a game that we reviewed. Uh, Realm of Impossibility, Archon. Uh, and of course, all those uh, epics style games, you know, the summer games, winter games, California games, so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, there were the games that you played when you were stuck at home after school and you played by yourself. And then there were the games that were fun two player games that you would go play, um, you know, whenever you went to go visit a friend. And so Barbarian was definitely one of those games for me. Uh, you would play it a little bit in one player, but where this game really shines is in two-player mode. So when Jeff and I would get together and play games, this is definitely one that we played uh, a lot, you know. Um, and, and when you're playing with your friend, really all you want to do is pull off that spinning move and chop their head off, you know. Um, and I remember getting really frustrated because we would both do 
the move where you do the forward roll and then and then kick him and forward roll and kick him. So it's very hard to to get on your feet and do an attack. And, and sometimes you'll both do forward rolls at the same time. You can end up switching places if one person's doing a forward roll. The other person could jump and you'll swap, which is always the uh, uh, the move of death because then it swaps all your controls. So if you're used to playing as player one or player two now, all of a sudden all your controls have been inversed. Um. I also know or I remember that Jeff at the time had a whole bunch of different uh, posters of girls uh, all around his room. I never had posters of girls. All my posters were of Star Wars things and horror movies <laughs> and uh, heavy metal bands. I did not have any posters of women hanging in my room, uh, but Jeff did. I think he got them at the fair or different places. You know, and there was a, a girl with a bikini. There was this uh, picture with all these girls that were in the back of a pickup truck. Uh, you know, so he had several of those posters in his room. And, you know, all the controversy about this game, I mean, about the, the model, uh, Maria Whitaker being on this, I don't really get because... I think teenage boys, a lot of teenage boys had posters that were, you know, graphics, not the right word, but girls in bikinis, uh, you know, was just kind of a thing in the eighties, you know, uh, I could see now, like, I think if this game are released now, you obviously, I don't think the focus would be on the woman in a bikini on the front. I think it would more be. Uh, that she seems to be, you know, she's sitting there almost in a seductive kind of pose with her her arm wrapped around his thigh in kind of, uh, you know, save me kind of pose. Um, but again, this isn't about, you know, 2020, 2021. This is about, you know, an ancient barbarian saving a girl or whatever. And that was really kind of the trope uh, from Conan, you know, um, for a while until... We got Red Sonia and some of those other movies, Barbarian Queen, where um, the women uh, picked up their swords and uh, came to the rescue. So I think, but I think that would be more of an issue. And I don't think you'd have the girl with the bikini <laughs> uh, on the cover today. But yeah, anyway, as far as my memories, uh, played it a lot, had a lot of fun, uh, enjoyed uh, the one player version a little bit, and, but we enjoyed the player versus player version uh, a lot more. For graphics, I will give Barbarian five out of five scantily clad princesses. I just don't see uh, what they could have done to make the graphics any better on this game. For music, I give it four out of five scantily clad princesses. The music is great. Sound effects, same thing. Four out of five scantily clad princesses. You get all kinds of sound effects during the fighting. You get the clanging of swords. You get the noise from the goblin. All kinds of stuff that's thrown in there. Uh, overall gameplay, I will give it four out of five scantily clad princesses. Uh, it is not terribly deep, so I did take one point away from that. But it is a great player versus player fighting game on the system. It's very easy to pick up, and it's a lot of fun to play. Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. 
If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at robohara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore or leave me a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. All Patreons of my shows get behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle is proudly sponsored by Retro Rewind. For all your Commodore bits, bytes, and accessories, visit Retro Rewind at retrorewind.ca forward slash Sprite Castle for a 10% discount on all orders. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Spotify, the RSS feed at podcast.robohair.com, and through the official Amigos podcast feed, which is anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more shows from me, like You Don't Know Flat, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness, visit podcast.robohair.com for links to these shows. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. I'm going to give a special shout-out to two specific articles that I used in research for this episode. Those include RetroGamer.net. There's an article there called The Making of Barbarian. And Eurogamer.net has an article called The Making of Barbarian, The Ultimate Warrior. There will be links to both of those articles in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to chopping people's heads off, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Unfortunately, those people are not high score achievers in Frankie Fish, Freaky Fish DX. Unfortunately, those are not all high score achievers in Freaky Fix. God. For all your Commodore bits, bites, and accessories, visit. God dang it. What are the primary differences between the 128 or. (laughs) Boy, we butchered the intro tonight.